The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Happy Tuesday, everybody. You're watching Squawk Box. You've got Jeff Cartmore, you've got Karen Cho, and you've got myself, Steve Sedgwick. These are your headlines. Chinese exports scoring a big beat, jumping more than 25% on the year in a sign the world's second largest economy may be performing better than a recent run of data suggested. Daimler in demand. The CEO of the German luxury automaker tells CNBC it's seeing strength across its product line despite supply chain challenges that the group hopes will ease later this year. We hope that Q3 is the trough. That uh, seems to be the quarter that will be most significantly affected by this. And some of the shutdowns due to COVID that we saw in Malaysia and in other places. And we hope that in the fourth quarter that we will start uh, coming back up again. Porsche is also feeling the chip squeeze. The CEO tells CNBC it's causing production line delays. We have the situation of the semiconductors and uh, therefore um, the waiting time is longer than normal and uh, depends um, on each segment. But it could be um, that the customer waits uh, half a year or, or a bit more. Bitcoin continues to push higher, breaching the 52,000 markers. El Salvador decides it'll be the first country to formally accept the crypto as legal tender. Everybody. Good morning, Karen. Welcome back to the studio. Thank nice you very much indeed. It's lovely to be here rather than sitting on the shores of Lake Como in Italy in 26 degrees. No, it's not, is it? Oh, anyway, it's great to be here anyway. Uh, Chinese exports have come in way ahead of forecasts, rising 25.6% in August from a year earlier. That is well above expectations, as well as last month's figure. Um, imports also beat expectations, growing 33.1%. The trade surplus widened more than expected to $58.3 billion. So let's just get this right, everybody, yeah? I mean, I'm not starting the chat yet because Karen's got some mark. So we, we are in emergency level interest rates around the globe. Emergency era rates. And we've just had those kind of figures out on the trade as well. Stunning figures emergency rates. Just bear that in mind. You might know where I'm going on my chat. I'll just take you to the markets and quickly for a look at what's playing out across the region. The Chinese market digesting the strong news around exports. You can see bouncing strongly again. Another near on eight tenths of a percent. But we've rallied pretty hard on the Shanghai Composite in recent uh, sessions. 3649 where we're trading. Hong Kong stocks also going with the market. Don't forget there's been a big tech theme still around these Chinese markets. And that's where you're seeing of a bounce back to uh, on some of these boards. Japanese stocks are worth noting. We continue to close the gap to 30,000 points. All this on hopes of further fiscal stimulus as we count down to the next election. Eight-tenths of a percent higher. The odd one out, really, the South Korean market up about seven-tenths of a percent. But worth noting in the data, this was one of the markets where we had seen some strong demand coming from the South Korean economy. 
But as we digest the data today, I want to know what the relevance is because we had a shutdown that disrupted some of the export-import data in China in uh, recent weeks, but that was all on the back of one COVID case. So can we take the direction, this improvement that we're seeing as a positive sign or is it just one piece of data because who knows what comes next in coming weeks and months in China? Well, I'm going to scooby what's going on in domestic China because we've had some uh, really, really tough days around before this one as well. But is this more an indictment of what's going on around the rest of the world, of course, because despite China's desire to move up the value chain, the fact of the matter is they still manufacture a vast amount of goods for the world, for the Western economies. And when you look at shipping rates as well, and I know we're going to bring Jeff in in a few moments' time, but I've talked about this, we've talked about this ad infinitum for the whole of this year, but shipping rates have gone through the roof. Warehouse rates have gone through the roof. The standard shipping container, the, the global benchmark, is like a 40-foot container, which you know, the ones we see on these enormous ships plying their, their trade across the Pacific and across the Atlantic uh, and, and round uh, from China, hopefully sometimes when it's working and they're not blocked up through the Suez Canal uh, to the Western markets as well. But the cost of those containers has gone through the roof. I'm sure it's just transitory inflation morning, Madame Lagarde, if you're watching. I'm sure you are. Uh, August 2020, the rate for a 40-foot container was below 2,000 bucks per container. That's from the Far East to North, Northern Europe. It's now almost $14,000. This the same is a container, demand story, though, right? It's a demand story. That's exactly my point. And the same container, if you were going from the Far East, let's say Shanghai to LA, was about 3,000 bucks, give or take the change, uh, in August 2020. That same container is now nearly $7,000. These may be transitory moves, but it seems to be lasting a very long time. Well, Maersk, the, the chief of Mask was talking about this yesterday, talking about this vicious cycle that you're seeing consumer demand, that uh, with those pandemic trends, you've now got the flip side, of course, where consumers are buying more and more product. And until you see a slowdown in that consumer demand story, you're not going to see any impact on the supply chain or the pressure that you're just describing in the shipping rates and what is uh, being pushed out across the world to various ports. But let's get to Jeff for an interpretation. Jeff, one of the I points I, I raised oh was God, that, that two-week shutdown that we had in China, which of course has skewed the numbers. Yeah, the problem is the data's bitty, isn't it? And it's very difficult to pull from the data a very clear trend. Uh, yesterday, we spent a lot of the program while Steve was in Ambrosetti talking about the analysis that was going on of the unemployment data we got from the United States and the non-farm payrolls figure. And that that's the complicated part of this equation, that even as what we've got here is a, a little bit of backward-looking data on Chinese exports, which suggests that the post-COVID lockdown demand uh, is still driving uh, manufacturing in China and high levels of uh, exports. And as Steve points out, higher TEU rates, those big container rates. At the same time, the message that we got from the US economy on Friday was hardly convincing about the uh, uh, flow back to work in the US economy ultimately to justify some of these higher data numbers that we're getting around exports and um, uh, and around um, market levels. So, so this is still the challenge. I mean, we had a piece of data yesterday out of Germany on the um, industrial manufacturing side, which again was way, 
way different to the economic forecasts that we had. So I think that just makes it still difficult to get very clear analysis here as we continue to look at the fog of war, if you like, around the post-pandemic reopenings. And of course, we know that the Delta variant continues to rip through some economies. And in particular in the United States, I think the picture is even more clouded on the demand side by the fact that we've got many of these pandemic Um, support plans beginning to wash out here. Look, if I look at the data here, seven, seven and a half million people just lost extended unemployment benefits yesterday. Two million have now lost an additional $300 in weekly top-ups. And we know the situation is similar here in Europe. In the UK, we've got a big debate going on about whether the um, the top-up in, in benefits in this country uh, should be allowed to wash out of the system or whether it should be maintained. And that debate rages. So I think you know, it's, it's, it's not a very satisfying answer, but I think for investors, it's still a complicated picture to analyze as we come out of the uh, pandemic lockdowns. We still don't know if we are out of the woods yet running into the uh, fourth quarter of the year on these pandemic levels. And consequently, that does make your investing decisions quite tricky. But look at the markets. We continue to be at all-time highs here. And I think that tells you that investors have decided that as long as the data looks patchy, the central banks are going to keep their foot firmly on the accelerator on money printing. But but, uh, but let's say something glib here. I don't give a damn about the markets in this conversation. There you go. Because how the markets interpret things is normally I'll buy it if the economy's going well, or I'll buy it if I'm getting loads of support, i.e. at the moment, just seems to be going up regardless. But but in terms of the data, I agree with you. There is pragmatism and opacity needed uh, and apparent in the data. No doubt about it. But some of the data isn't opaque. And like you and Karen and I were all talking about those TU rates as well. They have been going through the roof for a very long time. When you talk about German industrial data, Jeffrey, you're saying, actually, I don't know if it's a lack of demand or actually we've got supply problems because the German industry cannot get hold of its chips, cannot get hold of enough workers, cannot get hold of the work, warehousing, what have you. And so there are issues there. When we talk about the payroll data as well, I, I was surprised everyone even bothered uh, worrying uh, about that um, headline figure because the key rates are short the unemployment rate, the key rates of the average hourly earnings. They always have been as well. We've always known, and as Karen quite rightly previewed last Thursday, it's going to be a stunningly volatile number, and it remained a stunningly volatile number as well. And we can't tell what's going on in the US labour market, as you quite rightly say, because we don't know which percentage of workers actually just, you know what, don't need to rush back to work. They've saved vast amounts of money uh, during the COVID lockdown, which we know that savings rates are at very, very high levels as well. And I'm not just rushing back, but we can tell from the AHE figure, the average hourly earnings, that actually employers are crying out. We've seen the vacancies, we've seen the jolt survey, we've seen the AHE. There is a lot of evidence that there is wage inflation becoming embedded in the system. My point being is we have opacity and pragmatism is needed in interpreting the data. Where is the uh, pragmatism from the central banks? The central banks are leaving themselves with one trade, and that is to potentially get in front of the curve again at some stage. They're not saying, well, we're not sure, so we're just going to have precautionary moves and perhaps withdraw some of this stimulus we're putting into the stock market rather than the economy, because that's where a lot of this money's going, into the bond market rather than the economy, because that's exactly where the money's going as well. We're seeing shortages left, right and centre. They may well be transitory, but where's the wiggle room being left for the central banks by their stance? Yeah. 
Good point. Uh, let's uh, pick up the conversation and push on some corporate news crossing. Uh, Deutsche Telekom Tele2 uh, announcing that they will divest T-Mobile Netherlands. Uh, the uh, company structure, if you take a look at it, uh, the uh, company Tele2, 25% of stake, 75% in Deutsche Telekom. This uh, T-Mobile Netherlands business will be sold to Apex Funds and Warburg Pincus. Uh, so the, news, the announcement crossing today. But uh, there's been a lot of shuffling of the deck chairs in the sector around these assets, uh, particularly around T-Mobile, of course. Jeff, over to you. Yeah, let's pick up. Uh, Of course, one of the industries where a lot of these themes, this demand response, the inflationary pressures, the supply chain shocks have been felt most keenest are the auto sector, of course. And it's the Munich Motor Show this week. Annetta is there at the Motor Show. uh, And Annetta has been looking at the cars But obviously, listening to a lot of executives talking about the challenges around the chip shortages. Annetta, I mentioned yesterday when we were talking that a lot of the executives seem very happy about the demand picture. But clearly, the Jekyll and Hyde aspect has been just the new news around chip supply and the kind of time frame now that many of these executives think uh, it will take before we ultimately get these uh, chip supplies resolved. Yeah, exactly. That's actually a fair summary of what they had to say here on the ground. So essentially, the car industry is more or less the focal point of all these problems. They have to face higher commodity prices, higher freight rates, um, a scarcity of uh, semiconductors. And it's it's kind of interesting um, to, uh, also to get to know why it is it came around the corner so suddenly. And it of course, comes with digitization and electrification. A normal combustion engine car has some 300 chips in it, um, whereas an electrified version with much more software um, and custom-made things or tailor-made things inside the car has up to 3,000 chips per car. So you need the, the car industry just needs so much more of those semiconductors that it's quite clear that the uh, semiconductor industry cannot follow suit all of the sudden because it takes quite a lot of time to ramp up capacities. When I um, was talking to semiconductors um, experts down in Dresden, they explained me that to uh, ramp up capacities at an existing factory, it takes up to a year. um, And to really build a new uh, factory, it could take well in two to three years. So that gives you an idea of how long it will take until we have enough semiconductors around. But despite this scarcity, we have record demand, as you were just saying, with like almost all um, car makers here on the ground. I caught up with Ola Kalenius, the CEO of Daimler, who is well progressed into the electrification. They just presented the new EQE, which is a direct rival to the, a smaller Tesla here at the IIA in Munich. Take a listen of what you had to say about demand and where we stand. We have the good fortune that our product portfolio is, is the best we've ever had. So even going in before COVID really hit uh, uh, the whole situation, uh, we were feeling that demand was creeping up. And now it is for the whole portfolio. It's interesting because we were just discussing on the show as well, who is actually going to buy a combustion engine if you don't know what you can do with that kind of car, say, after 10 years. Is that a concern of your customers? 
Not really. This transformation, which is a fundamental transformation of the auto industry, it's not something where you can just push a button and from one day to another everything changes. It's a transformation where we intend to, to make uh, uh, the biggest leap in this decade and prepare ourselves for full electrification. But for the whole industry, realistically speaking, we're talking about the 20s and into the 30s. So it's not something that just happens suddenly. Um, if I look at your share price and com compare it to the one of Volkswagen, it's quite telling that Volkswagen shares are up a lot more than Daimler. So why is that in your view? And is there perhaps still a misunderstanding of the market? We have had a tremendous run in the stock since uh, kind of the COVID uh, down of the market uh, last year, which affected all industries. Uh, and uh, we feel that there is more potential to come, as you know. We're splitting Daimler into two pure player companies at the end of this year. And both businesses, a luxury plus tech passenger car business and a global leading player in the commercial vehicle side, have potential for uh, market cap growth. Um, let's talk about the, the demand situation, especially in China. We have seen PMIs in China being actually below 50 for the first time in many, many months. Um, so are you feeling a cooling off when it comes to demand in China? As far as Mercedes-Benz is concerned, not really. We had a very quick rebound and strong growth of the market last year after China came out of those first COVID lockdowns. So, uh, kind of three quarters of the year was incredible. That continued also in the first half of the year. And the only thing that is affecting us are production and supply constraints, not demand in China at this moment. Supply constraints is affecting the whole industry. When are you seeing the trough uh, to happen? Will it be uh, in the next quarter or later? We hope that Q3 is the trough. That uh, seems to be the quarter that will be most significantly affected by this and some of the shutdowns due to COVID that we saw in Malaysia and in other places. And we hope that in the fourth quarter that we will start uh, coming back up again. But there is a level of uncertainty that we have to deal with and our production system uh, needs to stay flexible. You're promising that your margins stay high um, because of you have successfully cut costs, etc. But how can that be if uh, electrified vehicles have lower margins? Uh, it is our goal throughout this transformation that the robust business model that we're enjoying today, that we will have the same robust business model at the other side of transformation and also fund this whole transformation with our own cash flows during it. We have to be our own venture capitalist. So yes, you got to work on the efficiency side while you're investing at record levels at the same time. So essentially, the car industry is in a, in a very good spot when it comes to demand, but still, there are so many challenges ahead. We can't just declare victory here because clearly, um, the, this transformation, as Ola was just pointing out, will cost them an awful lot of money. And, um, and also, the, the, the transformation depends whether the regulation and the political side of things follow suit because clearly, you need to have a functioning loading infrastructure in order to really um, have your fleet or fully electrified. So that remains to be seen. But still, at the moment, everybody seems to be quite happy here on the ground. I also had the chance to catch up with the Porsche CEO, Oliver Blume, and um, I had to ask him how long you have to wait for a Porsche right now, because it seems that the, the order backlog is really strong here as well. Take a listen. We set a new record uh, in the first half of the year uh, with our sales figures and uh, our order intakes 
are on an all-time high, but uh, volume has never been uh, the biggest driver for Porsche. Volume for us is more the consequence of a very positive product strategy. And that's what we are mentioning um, currently in the markets. How long do people need to wait for if they order a new Porsche right now? We have the situation of the semiconductors and uh, therefore um, the waiting time is longer than normal and uh, depends um, on each segment. But it could be um, that a customer waits um, half a year or, or a bit more. And uh, we hope uh, that we will solve uh, the topic with the semiconductors very soon uh, to be in a range of three or five months. And for us, always was important um, to have a very handcrafted, a very personal um, configured car for our customers. And therefore, the waiting time is longer than for a volume car. So there's another big threat looming over the car industry. Actually, Greenpeace and the German Environmental Aid Association are threatening the industry to sue them because they are not, um, their targets for climate neutrality are not strict enough. So that is a, a potential threat because we have seen cases in the Netherlands, for example, Shell, that those environmental groups really um, were successful um, at the courts. And now Shell has to revisit its climate strategy. And the same actually happened here in Germany with the constitutional court ruling back in May or April um, when the German government had to toughen up their climate targets. So that's a threat which it might actually uh, be looming large over the car industry as well. With that, over to you. Excellent work as ever, Anetta. Thank you very much indeed for that. Right, coming up on the show, the former US Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz tells me, actually, the whole industry needs to get behind the energy transition. More from that interview after the break. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Bitcoin broke $52,000 on Monday, continuing its recent surge after dropping to under $30,000 less than two months ago. From today, El Salvador will be the first country to accept Bitcoin as a legal currency alongside the US dollar. The president said the country now owns 400 Bitcoin. Worth noting that some users on uh, social media platforms like Twitter and Reddit are discussing plans about buying $30 worth of Bitcoin en masse to celebrate this move from El Salvador. So it may be an undercurrent in the market if we're looking for volatility in the next 24 hours. Right. Let's take a look at where crude prices are currently trading. I think 72.5 bucks. There you go. Bang on. 72.5 bucks for Brent up four tenths of one percent. WTI trading 69 spot one. So all energy companies must form part of the solution for the energy transition, according to the former U.S. Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz. I spoke to him at the Ambrosetti Forum and asked him about the future of oil. I think that there's no serious person would would argue that um, uh, petroleum-based fuels are going away 
in some in some rapid rapid fashion, uh, and certainly that's the case in the United States, uh, but it's also the case globally. So uh, I think that investment that has a very long time horizon is certainly being dampened uh, over the uh, you know uh, over the issues as to the energy transition, uh, but. Uh, it's, it certainly is not going to be uh, immediate. But I would add another dimension. The, the oil and gas companies, in my view, actually all of the energy companies, but the oil and gas, company, oil and gas companies in particular, they have to be part of the solution for the energy transition. They have enormous capabilities and assets uh, 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 for this transition. Uh, you know, whether it's uh, carbon dioxide management and and, and underground storage or uh, height, the, the entire hydrogen value chain, certainly blue hydrogen, uh, uh, making hydrogen from gas with carbon capture, uh, uh, geothermal systems, offshore wind logistics. So I think the issue is that the, those companies need to be more aggressive right now in adopting action plans that will make this business model evolution where their capabilities and assets are part of the solution. And in doing that, that's also very important for what is getting deservedly increased attention, namely that the transition be just. If the oil and gas companies can manage this transition, that also means their workers and their communities bridge that transition with high paying, good quality jobs. So. We need this broader system view as to how everyone comes together uh, to manage the energy transition. So, so hydrocarbons, petrochemicals, they're not going away anytime soon. And North America has a future with hydrocarbon extraction still. But is there a danger that the investment will be starved because of ESG agendas, because the investors are just turning their backs uh, on companies in the extractive, in the hydrocarbon industries? Well, I think we have to look at it more broadly. Uh, the reality is the financial world, uh, the investors, all kinds of investors with large pools of money for, you know, equity funds and banks, uh, 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 pension funds with very, very different risk reward um, uh, uh, calculuses uh, with very, very different fiduciary responsibilities. They are looking uh, consistently at how their investment strategy also evolves. You know, a lot of that has been in the oil and gas and midstream areas, how they evolve that with the energy transition. Uh, in fact, one of the big efforts which is needed, and my organization uh, certainly is going to be looking at this, is how do we reshape the policy and regulatory world in order to unleash huge amounts of private capital? We have to be going, you know, I think the, the, the energy transition to net zero is a hundred trillion dollar plus uh, affair. And uh, I am very encouraged at how uh, all of those financial institutions, first of all, they are demanding things like disclosure uh, from, uh, from the companies. They are doing it in order to be able to shape their own investment portfolios. But we know that most areas of the clean energy transition right now do not have, let's say, the returns 
that an investor would like without government coming in and reshaping policy and regulation. So that, I think, is a key step now that needs uh, further attention. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.